Take your Bibles, if you will, turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. You may notice in your bulletin that I titled this sermon, Christmas is for Children. Um, my dad has said to me in recent years with the birth of our children that Christmas is just more fun when kids are around. Uh, for a while, it was just me and my sisters, and we were getting older. And then, when Andrew and I uh, began having children, it, there was something different. It's if you're if you're a kid, or maybe you're a kid at heart, how can you not rejoice at at this time of year? I mean, there's there's presents, there's cookies. Uh, our kids, uh, Hannah came over this week, and they made gingerbread houses. I mean, it, you get to bring a tree into your house. And decorate it. I mean, if you're a kid, that's great, right? And sometimes it even snows, which is magical in its own right. And Christmas often means that you get to go to Christmas parties and stay up past your bedtime. I mean, if you're a kid, this is the most wonderful time of the year for sure. Uh, Christmas is also a time for, for great stories, isn't it? It's a time where we read books all the time. Stories of make-believe stories, of course, but you know, stories of red-nosed reindeer and chubby gift givers and talking snowmen and all the who's down in Whoville. I mean, who doesn't love a good story, right? These stories engage our imagination, but then we have the Christmas story that engages engages our hearts and is in, as fantastic as the story about uh, Ebenezer Scrooge and the and the three ghosts, or even uh, the story of It's a Wonderful Life. These are these are great stories, but they don't hold a candle to the story of Jesus coming into the world. It's a story that's filled with angels and and announcements. It's a story that's filled with scandal. It's a story where there's there's murder involved in this story. But at the center of the story, there is the miracle of miracles. The truth that God has sent His Son as a little baby so that he might be the savior of the world jesus tells us that unless we become like little children we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven he's not telling us that we need to be naive that we need to accept everything that's said to us by every person but he is calling us to childlike faith uh, to a faith that will read the story that we're going to read and say yeah that's true that happened, and I believe it. Luke proclaims here in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, he proclaims the heart of the Christmas miracle. And in doing that, he also paints a picture of a heart that responds to God and to this miracle as we all should. I think this is the point that I'd like to, to bring out this morning, is this, that Christmas is a miracle that we respond to as children. Christmas is a miracle that we respond to as children. And by that, I mean two things. We respond with wide-eyed wonder and with wholehearted trust. Christmas is a miracle that we respond to as children. We respond with wide-eyed wonder and with wholehearted trust. And so this morning, we're going to try to wrap our minds as much as we can around the miracle of God becoming man. And we're also going to look at a teenage girl named Mary and see how she is an example of this childlike faith. Let's read this great passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. It reads, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Christmas is a miracle that we respond to as children. And right here, Luke gets at the heart of the miracle of Christmas. Because Jesus, when he was born, he was born just like you and I. He was born in the same way. The real miracle is the conception of Jesus. It's unlike anything else that has ever or will ever happen. The text tells us in the sixth month. This is the sixth month since Gabriel was sent to Zechariah. This is the, the sixth month of uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy. And it says here that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. He is, he is summoned once again to leave his place of standing in the presence of God to deliver a message. But you remember last time he was sent to deliver a message to an old man in the big city of Jerusalem. But now he's asked to visit a young girl in a small town in Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Nazareth wasn't a thriving city. It wouldn't compare at all to Jerusalem. It wasn't a place of any reputation, but it was a small town that you might drive through without even noticing that you were there. It only had one stoplight. Uh, maybe had a Subway or a McDonald's. It was about 45 minutes from Walmart. I mean, that's the kind of feel of what Nazareth is. It's this town in the middle of nowhere in the boondocks, which I learned this week is from, the, from Tagalog. Um, anyways, so it's this town of, of no reputation. Uh, and the girl that, that Gabriel is sent to is, is about the same. She's a young woman, probably 13 to 15 years old, is about how old Mary would have been. And she's called a young woman, which assumes also that, that she is a virgin. That's stated in the text here. It says that she was sent uh, that, the, that, uh, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. So she was a virgin, and it says here she was betrothed to the town carpenter, to Joseph, whose greatest claim to fame was that he was a descendant of King David in Israel, which is going to become more significant as we read on. A quick note, though, on betrothal. It says that she was betrothed. Leon Morris, a commentator, writes this. He says, betrothal was a state much more binding among the Jews of that day than his engagement with us. It was a solemn undertaking to marry so that divorce was necessary to break it. We saw that in the reading of Matthew chapter 1, that Joseph was looking to divorce Mary because they were betrothed. This was a, a solemn undertaking. So Gabriel arrives in this little town to this little girl uh, so that he might give her the most astounding of news. And he begins by emphasizing the fact that God has shown her favor. 
He says, greetings, O favored one. And then later on in verse 30, it says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. She's found favor. God has chosen to bless her. God has chosen to be gracious to her. Gabriel knows the message that he's about to give to her. And so he opens up, he says, hello, Mary, you have no idea what I'm about to say, but I want you to know this, that you have been chosen. You are favored by God. God has chosen to show you uncommon grace and blessing. And he includes one of my favorite phrases in scripture. He says, the Lord is with you. The Lord is, is for you. The Lord is, is on your side. He is, he is with you. Now, let me address something, not as a way of, of bashing anything, but just because it's here in the text. Verse 28 says, He came to hear her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. There's another translation that's, that's very well known of verse 28, which is, Hail Mary, full of grace. That's one way to translate it. Uh, the translation there, though, emphasizes Mary. It emphasizes her being filled with, with some sort of unique measure of grace. But here the angel is not so much praising Mary, but he's letting her know how amazing God's grace is towards her, that she should be chosen for this special task. Another commentator, Robert Stein, says this, she had been chosen for this task because she had not been chosen for this task because she possessed a particular piety or holiness of life that merited this privilege. The text suggests no special worthiness on Mary's part. We could we could look back to um, Zechariah and Elizabeth and say that, well, they seemed worthy. But here with Mary, we see none of that. Stein continues, he says, the emphasis is on God's gracious choice, not on human acceptability. Mary understands this. Look at how she responds. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She's troubled. She's thrown off at such, at such a greeting. Why would God choose to favor her in such a way? Why, why would God come and, and show kindness to her? She's just a, a, a little girl in a little town in the middle of nowhere. You see, right at the very beginning, we passed over something very uh, significant that I think plays into this. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Gabriel came with a message, but it wasn't a, Gabriel, a message that Gabriel decided to bring. It was a message that God sent him to bring. God has begun the process. God began the process with the conception of John the Baptist, and he's continuing the process now by sending Gabriel to Mary. God is in control of all of these events, and in the fullness of time, he is getting ready to send his son into the world. And Mary hears this, and she responds with wide-eyed wonder, just like a child would uh, my question as I think about this is, do we respond in the same way to God's grace, to God's favor shown to us? Are we astonished at God's favor? Are we astonished that God would send his only son into this sin-cursed world so that we could find hope, so that he could be our savior? You know, I said Christmas is filled with joy when children are around. And, and part of it is because when they open presents that they have wanted, they rejoice. They respond with, with wide-eyed wonder. If, you, if I give my children something that they have been longing for, when they open it, they will, they will respond in such a way that says, Mom, Dad, I cannot believe that you got me this. One of my favorite parts about Christmas is spontaneous hugs. They just get up and give you a hug for just, I cannot believe that you have shown me such kindness. I think often as believers, though, we look at the miracle of Christmas with the eyes more, less of a child and more of kind of a cynical teenager. No offense to teenagers. 
but maybe a teenager who on Christmas morning opens his iPod and says, Mom, it's blue. I wanted it to be green. <laughs> we don't recognize the favor that we've been given. We think that we deserve something. But God has shown us favor in Christ that, that we don't deserve in any way, shape, or form. We should be astonished. We should be, in a sense, troubled and say, why, why would God ever show me grace? All that we deserve is judgment because of our sin. The wrath of God is upon us because we have rebelled against God. And then God says, yes, that's what you deserve. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send him to make a way. It says, for those of us who have been adopted as the children, he says, you are favored, you are, you are blessed. And rather than say, oh, yeah, of course I am. I think we should respond like Mary, with a humility, with, with wide-eyed wonder. It should fill us with wonder that God has saved us, that God has called us to be his own. The wonder for Mary doesn't cease because the angel hasn't even revealed about what he's about to do. And so he tells her here, says, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. He says, Mary, you're going to have a baby. And then he tells her the two things that, that every parent wants to know. He says, first of all, he tells Mary the gender. It's going to be a son, so it will be a boy. And then he says, and you will call him Jesus. This will be his name. I wish Gabriel had showed up and done that for us. Because Elaine was the only child that we knew she was going to be a girl and that we had a name picked out before she was born. Our other children we were surprised with. And uh, it was about 24 hours before they had a name. Um, so the, it, it's just an amazing thing. He says his name is going to be Jesus. It's the Old Testament name Joshua. It means the Lord is salvation. We see in, in Matthew chapter 1, he says, you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then here's a five-fold description of, of him. This is similar. You would, we could look back to the announcement made to Zacharias. You remember he says, Zacharias, Elizabeth is going to have a son. This is what he's going to be like. And they're parallel, except in this, Jesus is shown to be more and more. He's shown to be greater than John the Baptist ever would be. It says here right off the bat, um, in verse 32, it says, He will be great. John the Baptist was said to be great in the sight of the Lord, but Jesus said is said to here, here to be great, period. He will be great. He will be amazing. That's the first description. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Most High meaning the God of all gods. There is no other God. He is the Most High God. He will be the Son of of God. It says later on, it says, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. Suddenly we see the significance of Joseph being of the house of David. You see why we read all those, why I made Matt read all those names from Matthew chapter 1, showing that Joseph was a descendant of David, that he was in this, this line. We can go back to 2 Samuel 7 and see that this is a fulfillment of what God was going to do. That God was had said he is going to, to send someone who will be in the line of David. And then the, the fourth thing, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He will be the king over Israel. And fifth, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. This will be a kingdom that breaks into the world. And when it comes, there will be no end to this kingdom. It will last forever. He'll be great. He'll be the son of God. 
He will be of the line and he will sit on the throne of David. He will reign over Israel and there will be no end to his kingdom. This this son is going to be amazing. This is this is the Messiah. This is the one. This is the one we've been waiting for. He fits all of the descriptions. He's great. He's the son of God. He's of the line of David. He's going to set up a kingdom over Israel and the kingdom will never end. This is the one that we have been that, that the Israelites had been waiting for and little Mary sitting in the middle of Nazareth has just been told, "You are going to have a baby and it will be the Messiah." Can you imagine what's going through her mind? at that moment well the text tells us she says how will this be since i am a virgin she's she's filled with wonder but i think in contrast to zechariah she's not she's not asking for a sign she's not saying tell me how i will know that this is going to be for real no rather she says how how will, she just wants to know how is this going to happen i i don't understand i believe it can happen could you tell me how because I'm a virgin. Now, Zechariah's issues was what? I'm old. <laughs> now, that was a problem that God had solved way in the past. We, we've seen that with Sarah, with, with Hannah, that, it, it, that God can overcome that. Zechariah should have known that, that his age wasn't an issue. But Mary's got something totally unique going on here. She says, I can understand that, you know, Sarah and Hannah, but I'm a virgin. How is this going to happen. Suddenly we see the uniqueness of what God's going to do. Something like this, like what happened with Elizabeth, had happened in the past, but, but nothing like this. And so Gabriel explains, the angel answers her, says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is the greatest description we have of how the conception of Jesus happened. And yet even in this, there is mystery. It says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's the same word that's going to be used in Acts 1.8 when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. So there's this sense of, of power and of wonder. God's going to do something amazing and unique. And it says the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is the same word that Luke's going to use later on in the Transfiguration. You remember when they're standing there with, with Moses um, and Elijah and the, and the cloud comes down and God speaks out of the cloud. It says that the cloud came down and overshadowed them. There's this sense of the power of God and of the presence of God. These words might call to mind something like the end of Exodus when, when, the, when God's glory comes and rests before the tent of meeting. You might even think about Genesis 1-2 where it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Something unique is happening here. Something creative. Something new and fresh by the power and the presence of God. That's about all we can say about it, really. Except to say that because of this, the child to be born will be called holy. He will be separate. He will be distinct. He will be the Son of God. He will be the God-man. He will be of the seed of woman. He will be from Mary. And yet, he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Amazing miracle. The miracle of Christmas. But the angel goes on, he says, he tries to give some proof because he knows that this is crazy. That this is something totally amazing. And so he says, well, let me give you an example. Your, your cousin, Elizabeth, 
She's old and, and she's going to have a baby. She's conceived a son. She's in her sixth month. Mary obviously didn't know this. Her cousin hadn't told her. Maybe they hadn't met since then. Remember, Elizabeth had hidden herself for five months. And so Mary hears about Elizabeth from Gabriel. I guess that's one way to find out about your cousin having a baby is to have an angel tell you. And it says here that, 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 she, he, that Gabriel gives some proof for this. But then ultimately he says in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Doesn't that remind you back of Genesis 18 when the angel says to Sarah after she laughs at the thought that she is going to have a little baby, what does the angel say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? This is just a positive statement rather than a question. The angel simply says nothing. Absolutely nothing will be impossible with God. Now, I think that belief in, in the virgin conception of Jesus can be mocked. But, but belief in the virgin conception of Jesus doesn't mean that you have to mentally check out. It doesn't mean that you have to suspend your rational thoughts for a moment and say, yeah, that's, that's fairy tale, but I guess it's real. But what it means is you have to believe what Gabriel says, that nothing is impossible for God. It's not that we check out of our rational capabilities, but rather we, we start to think about who God is, that he's the creator and sustainer of everything, that he created the world out of nothing, that he gave barren 90-year-old Sarah a baby, and he gave geriatric Zechariah and Elizabeth a baby. And if nothing is too hard for him, nothing is too wonderful for him, then belief in the virgin birth is something that doesn't require us to disengage our brains, but rather it tells us engage your brains in who God is, and, and your faith in who God is. And if, if God is who he says he is, then nothing's impossible for him. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too wonderful for him. So Mary hears about this. She hears what's going to happen, how this baby's going to be born. And she responds with wholehearted trust. Look at this beautiful response. Verse 38, Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, the bond slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She responds. She has responded with this wide-eyed wonder. Now she responds with, with wholehearted trust. She says, I'm the servant of the Lord. I'll do whatever the Lord says. And to emphasize that submission, she says that she believes what Gabriel says. She submits to them. She says, let it be to me according to your word. She accepts this into her life. She says, yes, Gabriel, if, if that's what God has chosen to do with me, then let it happen. I am the Lord's servant. I would do whatever God asks me to do. And at that point, the angel then departs from her. Now, I don't know, when you think about Mary, did she understand what she was taking on? Did she understand the consequences of what was going to happen? That she, a virgin that had been betrothed to someone that was not married, was going to become pregnant? Did she understand that the ridicule that she was going to face? Had she thought through that? Had she thought through the fact that Joseph might divorce her? That this relationship that she had could be ended? That she would be ostracized from her family? I don't know. I don't know if, the, if she processed all that in that moment. She may have, she may have not. But what we do know is that... It, it doesn't really matter whether she processed it then or later. In this moment, she says, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. I am the servant of the Lord. I will do whatever God says. She was ready and willing to serve God, whatever the consequences. She would bear Jesus 
in her body, and she would deal with ever, whatever consequences came her way. I think that's how we respond when God talks. We say that our response to Christ is to be, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If we've come to the place of, of believing, of accepting the truth that salvation is accomplished through the miracle of the incarnation, if we are willing to serve the Lord, then we would say we should say, I will, I will serve you, Lord, whatever it costs. Do, do whatever you want. I believe. I wholeheartedly trust you. I place myself in your hands. That's so childlike, isn't it? Ch- children trust parents. They trust those that they know love them. They will do whatever. They will, they will jump from high heights. They'll go swimming with you and let you take your hands off them because you say, trust me. I, I know what I'm doing. And we should be the same way with the Lord. God's not asking us to, to bear his son. <laughs> I think it would be impossible for many of us. Not that anything is impossible for God, but I don't think that's his plan. <laughs> now, rather, what he's asked us to do is he's asked us to bear his name. He's asked us to be his followers, to say that we are Christians, that we are little Christ, that we would model him, that we would proclaim his name, that we would proclaim his gospel as the hope of all mankind. That's what we're called to do. There may be consequences from that. We're going to walk out into a neighborhood and we're going to say, here's a poinsettia. In the name of Jesus. It seems so simple. But it could be that someone slams the door in our face. It could be that someone points their finger at us and says, how can you believe in a God that would murder his own son? We may face ridicule. We may face opposition. And there are those who face being ostracized by their family because of their faith. Maybe not us, but around the world that's true. Are we willing to say, God, let it be to me according to your word. I will bear your name, whatever the consequences, whatever comes. I will wholeheartedly trust you. Because not only has he called us to bear his name, but he's also called us to bear his reproach, Hebrews 13 says. To go outside the camp and to suffer with him. Mary suffered. This was not an easy road. We have our nativities set up and it looks very clean. And very simple, and yet, can you imagine the nine months that Mary went through, knowing that this was happening, feeling all of the ridicule, going through the thought of 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 her future husband wanting to 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 release her from this bond. I mean, this was difficult, but she knew that she was the servant of the Lord, and she would do whatever God had asked her to do. So our response, when God calls us to do something, should be, "I'm the servant of the Lord." Let it be to me according to your word. Luke will say later on that it's the Father's good pleasure to hide the truth from the wise and the prudent, to reveal it to children. I, I feel like that's almost what Mary is. She's only 13, 15. She's a, she's a child. And Christmas is for children. Christmas is for children, given that the, the, the incarnation of, of and, and given the fact that the, the incarnation of Jesus as God is the core of Christianity, we could say not just Christmas is for children, but Christianity is for children. Jesus says we have to come like little children and, and believe the kingdom of God is made up of little children. It's made of, of, of little children who with wide-eyed wonder look at the favor that God has shown them and say, I cannot believe, I cannot believe that God has shown me such favor, that God has blessed me, that God has shown me grace. We don't scoff at it and say, yeah, I deserve it. We say, 
I can't even wrap my mind around the fact that God would do that. Not only with why I wonder at that, but why I'd wonder at the miracle that God has done in accomplishing salvation, not just in the virgin birth, but the fact that Jesus came and died and rose again. And that if we just simply put our faith in him, that we will be saved. We should walk into that with, with wide-eyed wonder. The kingdom of God is made up of children who, who look with wide-eyed wonder at the favor that God has shown, that look with wide-eyed wonder at the salvation that he has given, and also who receive the miracle as truth, who submit to the Lord, who wholeheartedly trust and say, wherever you want me to go, God, I will go. If you want me to stay, I will stay. If you ask me to do this, I will do it. Whatever the cost, whether it's ridicule, whether it's joy or pain, I will do it because I am the servant of the Lord. God has shown me favor and I will do what you ask me to do. So, uh, I want us to be like kids this Christmas as we think about the miracle of Christmas. Christmas is a miracle that we respond to as children. With wide-eyed wonder, we should be amazed at what God has done and that he has done it for us. We should trust fully. We should renew our hearts afresh to say, whatever, God, whatever you ask me to do, I'm your servant. I will go wherever you want me to do. I will face whatever you want me to face because you have shown me this favor. Let's take a moment of silence and respond to God's word.